Jonathan, it's great to be with you on the second Sunday of Easter. How are you doing today? Good, Seth. It could be the 400th Sunday of Easter, and I'd still be glad to see you. I echo that. Well, let's get us a little bit on track with our question. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to have a mystical vision or... Not have a mystical vision. <laughs> what? <laughs> I couldn't say that without laughing. Obviously, I would choose to have a mystical vision <laughs> if the option's to do it or not. Well, I was kind of leaning toward not. I don't know. What? Because <laughs> I think I'd have the mystical vision. And then I'd just be like, what do I do now? Like, how do I interpret this? Who do I tell about it? Should I write it down? I don't... Man, you gotta want to live your life. You just don't want to do it because you don't have to do anything afterwards. That's yeah, probably true. <laughs> Crap. You know, I didn't really think of it that way, but that's... Get it together. That's probably it. I'm like, I would not have one time a mystical vision because of the repercussions on my life. Well, having realized that about myself, I guess I would have the mystical vision with you. That was a pretty easy question. I mean, you seem to flip-flop, but if you say so... That's fair. Well, let's see how this question dovetails with our text. So would you read it for us? Sure. I'd be glad to. This is Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 from the NRSV. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. I feel like this should end at the Amen. Because you said that and I was like, oh, we're done. And then I was like, oh yeah, there's another line left. <laughs> Yeah, I said it twice, too. Yeah. I had two But especially the second one. I was like, oh. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you chose the passage, so. <laughs> I picked this from the lectionary. They cut it and spliced oh, fair. it. Okay, fair. However they wanted You're right. To. You're right. Fine. Sorry I tried to blame you. It's okay. Well, besides the amens, what else did you notice? Well, I think it's appropriate given that it's Easter, a couple of Easter references here, or Holy Week references, namely that we are giving glory and dominion to the one who f loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And it talks about those who pierced him. There are just all these references to kind of the Holy Week story, Jesus' journey to the cross and the resurrection. So those are just the phrases that stood out to me, just because of the time of year it is. 
I don't know that I have some particular insight into why they stood out, but I was just like, huh. I was wondering why this particular passage was, you know, for the second week of Easter. And maybe you have more to say about that. I don't know. I think your connection with the Easter imagery is exactly why this text is for the second week of Easter. I think just following Easter Sunday, the lectionary committee was just looking for for something that carried through, you know, not just like one little line from the crucifixion and resurrection story, but like wanted a kind of a smattering of, of pieces from it. And I think that's how they landed on this for the second week, just like you said. The only other thing I was thinking is that it's hard to know much about John. Like we know he has this kind of mystical vision. Um, we know a little bit from the few lines that come before this. But from this little passage, we can tell already that John knows like a pretty accurate, vivid account of what happened at the crucifixion right the people who were piercing him hmm. like so it, so john at least knows that part of the story so is there anything else that jumped out at you should we talk a little bit about the book of revelation should we think about that and then maybe come back to the text i think it would be helpful i uh, just because this is the greeting of the book. And I don't think we've spent too much time in Revelation either. You're right, Jonathan. I don't know if we've ever talked about Revelation on the podcast. But either way, the first thing I want to say about Revelation is that it can be a little bit triggering for people. I think because people tend to have two different experiences with it and both of them are negative. And these are these are broad camps. But one is that when you were growing up, you were like your church or your youth group or even yourself was like kind of strangely obsessed with Revelation. And maybe you read the Left Behind series and like these images are just burnt into your mind about judgment and the fantastical beasts and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And sometimes just reading it brings back all those feelings of of terror and and like your feelings of childhood and hearing about it and being confused. So that's one camp. And I think the other one, and this is probably where I found myself for most of my life, is like my canon functions mostly without revelation. Like I get I get to the New Testament and I just kind of conveniently like snip off Revelation and like maybe include like 20 to the end. But the one thing that I want to make clear about Revelation, despite kind of how confusing it can be, is that I don't think it's a book about the future. If, if it was a book about the future, I just think it would be a strange inclusion in the Bible. Like, I think it must speak to John's audience then, and it must speak to us today, too, in some way. It doesn't just speak to people who are, like, far off in the future, 
kind of waiting to be born, waiting to see what's happening. And the last point I want to make kind of in our introduction to Revelation is that I think we have to read it as somehow being good news. The very first line is something like the revelation of Jesus Christ, which tells me at least something that has to be about Jesus Christ. So whenever we read it and we get kind of caught up by the beasts, or by all the fire and the brimstone, I think like that can tell us that maybe that's important, but also what's more important is that somehow Jesus Christ is in here, that this, that this book tells us something about Jesus, too. You're fine. So I've been thinking about Revelation kind of less as some terrifying book about the end times and more actually similar to some of Paul's letters like John writes to a specific community about specific problems and he does so like in a way that's hopefully pastoral that's not just doom and gloom but is helpful to them so that's kind of my short primer to the book of Revelation so I hope that helps us a little bit. I know I know we only have four lines, so it's difficult here to like get a broad idea of what John's doing. But I hope that at least kind of those points help guide us as we're kind of talking about the book as a whole. You know, I think that's a really helpful introduction because this book is either taken so, so literally or, as you were suggesting it's like so removed because we're just terrified of it. And I think either way, like you suggested too, either one of those attitudes like takes fear away from the experience hmm. of revelation. Like my, the way I've re resonated with revelation is that it's like profound political commentary. Like it's, it's not attempting to be apocalyptic in that it is about the end of the world. It is attempting to be apocalyptic in that it is revealing, thus revelation, but it is revealing something about the way that things already are. And so it is being critical of things that are happening in the world at the moment. But going back to our passage, what strikes me about it is that we've been talking about the way that it's, it's contemporary to John's audience. It's not some kind of future-looking text. And I think we see that, like, just so simply in the verb tenses. They're not in the future. It's not that this is gonna happen. But even in our short texts, like, we see that Jesus made for us a kingdom and we're priests serving. So I think that even that is, like, a subtle hint and the same is true when we get to that kind of famous refrain that Jesus is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Like, I think that the ordering of that is actually important. Because if I was going to write that sentence, I'd probably do it in like what seems like chronological order. Like who was right. and is and is to come. But I think John's just trying to stress so much that Jesus is is active and working right now. 
And he's like, forget chronological order. I'm putting is first. So again, I think even there we see that like this is about what's happening right now. And I think it's also important to reiterate like this is a letter, but it's also communal. Mm-hmm. And it, like you're saying, it is also yeah. intended for a community of faith or seven communities of faith. And think of it more like a Pauline epistle rather than some mystical vision to steal your <laughs> steal your language from your question. You know, that might be more helpful for us. And I know the early parts of this book, I, mean, I know the earlier parts of this book talk specifically to the specific churches. And I think those are some really interesting, interesting instructions and connections with all those communities. But ultimately, like, like you said, this is about good news for the communities that John is writing to. It's not just some vision off in the middle of, you know, the Greek Isles. Hmm. Uh, it's a it's a vision for a new type of community that is established here by one who is both on high and, as we've known from the past several weeks, is very physical and tangible. A God who bears scars from wounds. I like that you're using that word physical. Because I think that that's also what John's hammering. If I can keep using that word here too. Like he's talking about blood. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Like what? Like what a visceral image that is. So John's not just talking about even his mystical vision, right? But there's something that's concrete about the way he's describing it. Or at least he's describing it a concrete person that you can see who who was pierced. So again, what you were just talking about, I think, is another helpful kind of corrective to the ways that I find myself reading Revelation. is to just slip into this mode where i'm like oh this is like this is some crazy vision and i'm losing track of the way that it's so so physical the way that it's about jesus christ who's here and with us who took on human flesh who experienced pain and suffering isn't that isn't that a powerful reminder i i really feel like the focus of lent is so grounded in Jesus's literal footsteps. <laughs> hmm. And it's like the experience of Easter and, you know, the experience of the Ascension and all these things. It's like, it draws Jesus, the human one, back into the Godhead in a way that creates this everlasting connection or reminds us of an everlasting connection hmm. between the earth and our flesh and the divine. And it's almost like with this, I mean, this is kind of more common on the lectionary than anything. But it's like by including this passage here at this time, we're starting to recognize the way that the one whose hands and feet were pierced as a political prisoner of Rome <laughs> also is the one who says, I am the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. The one who, instead of coming down the streets of Jerusalem is now coming on the clouds. Mm. 
we often talk about Jesus's dual nature, Jesus's humanity and divinity, and those things are one. And yet this one feels like it's pulling me away from Jesus's humanness, which I, I think I tend to emphasize a little more. But it's still there for sure. Yeah. But we've talked a lot about Revelation as a whole. So let's kind of take take the next step into what it what it means for us today. And I guess just the question, this is a broad question, but what I've been I've been tossing back and forth in my mind is like, how does this text give hope to marginalized communities? Because I think that that's that's the background that John's writing to. And if my if my thesis is right that this is more of a pastoral letter than it is like some mythic conquest, how is it giving hope to the people that he writes about who are under Roman oppression, who are poor, who farm constantly for a living, but just make enough food to eat? For people who fish, but for whom fishing is like a very taxing way to make a living out on boats and pulling sails and you know pulling in nets of fish not like today where the the giant nets they used to catch the fish at the grocery store power brought in by you know hydraulic reels and you don't have to man the sails anymore and things like that so again these are these are people who are living like what to us and I think even to them is like is is a rough life of like just getting by in an empire that sees them mostly as dispensable. Yeah, and the contrast is really evident as well. I was thinking like the con- I think that's what stands out to me is we get a taste of it here of portraying Jesus being a certain way. And what I think we often miss out on is the cultural context that these words emerged in. So let's say today I was to say something to you along the lines of Jesus came riding on the clouds with a red hat that said, make everyone love again, or something like that. I don't know. It's like in 2,000 years, (laughs) people might be able to read that story and make some sort of connection that's meaningful in their time. But depending on their level of knowledge and awareness, and probably it will not be even a thought at that point, but like the connection that we have to red hats that say make something something again, we get a weight to that statement that because of the comparison we make automatically Mm -hmm. with a snap judgment that someone without our cultural context or the context of time wouldn't be able to make. And so that's what I'm, I'm seeing here too, is like, I can see this contrast of how and who Jesus is, but I can also feel like I'm missing out on an inside joke or Mm. something, right? Like, oh, there's clearly something more going on. And I just don't have the knowledge and the understanding to get what it's about. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, John leaves this like a, like a map, a road map, but then like we've lost the legend to it. So like we don't know what the symbols mean anymore. Right. Right. Like we have to do like really intense 
investigative work to even get close, you know, to figuring some of them out. Right, and there's just so much more there that, like, we we don't know. Because it feels like, like, hey, you know, like a lot of passages in Scripture, you know, we're we're just truly looking at a greeting, right? Yeah. We're looking at a greeting from an ancient letter. I mean, obviously, we both think it's more than that. And there's things here that we could reflect on theologically. But also, at the same time, this is the beginning of one of the most daunting parts of all of the Bible that we hold dear, it's taken us a hundred and what a hundred and three episodes to get here, <laughs> but before we've even scratched the surface of this, I wonder what that says about our willingness to engage in something that's hard and complicated. You know, well, judging by uh, what would you do in this particular situation? Question: My willingness to engage in something that's hard and complicated right now is unfortunately low. <laughs> like. If it's going to kind of change my life and be inconvenient right now, I'm like, uh, we'll, we'll skip that and put it off. At least till later. But I think that makes so much sense these days, though. We've been in a time of such disruption that there's been, I mean, before the pandemic, there's been research done on, like, why nostalgia is such a big deal right now. Hmm. Hmm. You know, there are reboots and remakes of all of these old TV shows and movies. And, you know, favorite songs are coming back into play. Certain styles are being reiterated again and again. There are trends all through the pandemic, especially of people instead of, you know, we have all this content available to watch on all these streaming services. (laughs) And rather than watch something new, People tend to, I know I'm one of these people, many people tend to watch the things that they already know again and again, because rather than seeking novelty, they're seeking comfort. Rather than seeking challenge, they're seeking familiarity. And I, I'm about that too. And it's, it's, I say it like it is a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But I definitely think as I say that out loud, I can see some ways that translates into the life of the church, of what we are willing to do, what we are willing to give up, what we are willing to not take on to preserve the status quo. On that note, too, I was just listening to an episode of The United States of Anxiety, uh, which is a show, an NPR uh, production in New York hosted by Kai Wright. They were talking about the Reconstruction era and why kind of why it failed. And they said something about how great reform efforts, great efforts for change often fail for one reason. And it's the, like the energy of the people advocating for the change. Hmm. And he kind of ended the show with the line that will just stick with me for a long time. It's just like, if history tells us anything, it's that people who are fighting for the status quo won't lose their energy in the same way. (laughs) Hmm. Wow. So to flip it on its head and ask you a question, even though <laughs> you're the okay. non-expert in this situation, what do you think Revelation challenges about our status quo? What's disruptive about this passage to you? Here again in this passage, like we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but I hear again a critique of who has power 
and kind of who should have ultimate power. Or another way to think of it is like who has put themselves in the place of God? Like who runs around thinking they're gods with like a lowercase g? And who's really God with a capital G? I just think like this again kind of points me back to the one who's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Like it points me back to the God who kind of rules over all the people that I think have power, or who exercise their power now, kind of temporarily, or in kind of, or who exercise their power temporarily, or in kind of small segments of society, like our politicians, right? It's like they only have power kind of in one arena. But then I think like what this challenges for me is to think about the ways that God kind of works across the board above all of those people who has more ultimate power than them but who exercises that power not kind of with might but through suffering love so it's a critique of power and the way that people exercise it but it's also a reinterpretation or reforming for me at least of the way that god uses power in contrast to those people like even, even pierced, God still comes on the clouds. And I think, at least I'm reading the clouds as being quite gentle. You know, fluffy ones. Not with, a, not with an army, right? It's with the clouds, the silent clouds that roll in, that water the earth. People who have power, who maintain the status quo, Never give it up easily. It's like you were talking about. They they just seem like they, they can keep going. They're the Energizer bunnies. But again, I think what we see here is that the one who's the Alpha and the Omega can outlast all of that. Sorry, that was like a small soliloquy. I call it a homily or a homlet. <laughs> a homlet. <laughs> I'm truly grateful for it and think it's a great note to end on. So. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Will you pray with me? I'd love to. Jesus Christ, who is and who was and who is to come, challenge us, but also comfort us. Push us to combat systems of injustice, to push against people who have power, but help us to do it and be sustained by you in the process. Help us to love like you because we have been freed from our sins by your blood. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this second week of Easter. Join us next week to talk about one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, John 21, verses 1 to 19. But until then, Seth, thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping me tell it. It's always good to see you, even if our listeners can't. They just have the pleasure of hearing your smooth voice
that's only gotten better since you've had voice acting lessons. I'm just waiting for the commercial. Come on do you want me to do, you. do a commercial for our podcast? Yeah. What what kind of tone are we going for? Are we going for like the guy who's trying to sell a pickup truck? Are we going for the cool your cool neighbor dad? I think the pickup truck because we're we're trying to sell something. We have <laughs> <a> free podcast. <laughs> I need to really get into it. Give me a second. Okay. Okay. If you're looking for the best podcast of all time, check out No Experts Allowed. You probably won't find the best podcast of all time, but you might get a little closer. No Experts Allowed. Check it out on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to those podcasts. Whoa. <laughs> It was like Nick Offerman doing a, <laughs> a commercial for us. That was crazy. I did not see that coming. 